how's it going? This is Champagne Sharks. And this is T. On Twitter, you could find me at Ricky Rawls, R-I-C-K-Y-R-A-W-L-S. And with me is co-host Mike. Say hello. Hey, everybody. This is Mike. Uh, you can find me under Dear White Jesus at Black Exception One on Twitter. Let's get it going. All right. So this is take two. We had technical difficulties the first time. So we lost about 30 minutes of uh content but i have a strong feeling that the redo is going to be like a million times better so this is all destined to be our guest is michael cruz from politico i'll let you introduce yourself and what you do yes michael cruz good to be with you guys again um i'm a senior staff writer at politico and politico magazine and on twitter at at Michael Cruz, K-R-U-S-E. Great. And we were discussing your recent article in Politico about Trump voters in a place called Johnstown, the full title being Johnstown never believed Trump would help. They still love him anyway. So I'll give you a chance to give a summary of the article. So Johnstown, Pennsylvania, about 90 minutes east of Pittsburgh, is a old coal and steel town that was the lifeblood of the place for decades and decades, centuries. Uh, The steel mills started closing in earnest 30, 40 years back. Uh, It has created a situation where Johnstown, like many places in the Midwest and in the Rust Belt, uh, feels downtrodden and left behind. The people there feel left behind uh, because they, in many ways, have been left behind. And it is also the kind of place, one of many of these sorts of places that in Pennsylvania and in Wisconsin and in Michigan uh, made Donald Trump the president a year ago um, and a week. Can you summarize uh, some of your findings, at least the most notable ones that you put into the article? Sure. So what I found, and, and and I found this because a year ago, in the immediate aftermath of the election, I went to Johnstown and talked to a, a wide array of Trump voters, Trump supporters. And then I went back a year later um, last week to talk to them again and to, in essence, compare and contrast the answers um, to my questions in November 2016 to the answers to my questions in uh, November 2017. And the most interesting thing and the most striking thing to me was that in 2016, uh, there was a sense of excitement that um, President-elect Trump was going to um, fix things in their area, was going to uh, help ease a raging opioid epidemic, which has 
become this way because of the sense of sort of hopelessness and lack of a future. Uh, and that is the case because of the relative dearth of coal jobs and certainly steel jobs too. Uh, you know, there are so few jobs of the sort that made it um, a place where somebody in the middle of the 20th century could graduate high school, walk across the street, sign up for a job at the steel mill, and work there for 30 years, and then retire. It's not a lavish lifestyle, certainly a demanding um, work environment, but to retire with some security and to have lived with some sense of stability and security. That is gone. That has been gone for a generation plus. And what I found in the uh, second trip was a sense that, well, <laughs> he's actually not fixed these things for us and probably never will, but uh, we still... Um, love him and we still support him for a, uh, a variety of interesting, compelling, important reasons. Yeah. And that was the most interesting, fascinating parts to me is it's something that I've suspected, but it was something, it was something else to see it so explicitly said. And that's the idea that we're going to support him no matter what. I mean, which is something that we kind of seen anyway in the during the election and after, but a lot of people weren't even hiding it. A lot of people were saying, "Hey, I'm just not going to stop, even if he doesn't deliver um, anything," and especially because they were happy that he was pissing off the right people, as if for a lot of people, just pissing off people was enough of a substitute for tangible gains. Well, he is um, a reflection and a voice for their frustrations and their anxieties and their sense that a world that used to be one way is no longer that way. And that more than any specific policy gains um, or even ideas is what I think in many cases, is most animating for the people that I talk to in Johnstown or many of them. And in a broader sense, many people in many Johnstowns. Okay, now I'm going to ask about certain areas or ideologies of the political spectrum. And as I ask each one, I just want to see what different areas have said in response to this piece. So actually, to start with, let's start with the actual Johnstown community. How have people from Johnstown uh, responded to this piece? Strongly, um, and in a way that they did not respond to the first story a year ago, which also included some sentiments and some language, particularly racially insensitive and racially ignorant language uh, as well. But for some reason, this, uh, this piece um, 
a week ago or so um, was shared extraordinarily widely um, on Twitter and on Facebook. And because of that, I think brought a spotlight to Johnstown or certainly to certain uh, elements within the population, certain ideas within the population in Johnstown that reflected in a way that made uh, other people uh, in that small city and in the area um, uncomfortable or ashamed or embarrassed. And so I think there's been a fair amount of blowback, you know, community pushback, community letters, um, uh, you know, emails to me, emails to Politico, uh, letters written uh, to the local newspaper, um, sort of saying this isn't this isn't who we are, and I would agree that this isn't what Johnstown is one hundred percent and entirely, but it is certainly part of what Johnstown is. Uh, it is something I've experienced um, in both my trips there. And granted, I'm just uh, I'm just going there for uh, you know parts of weeks, uh, but you know people say what they say and. Um, respond the way they respond to my questions. And in some cases, don't even respond to questions, just say things um, outright because they, uh, for, whatever, for whatever reason, they want to say things to me. And, um, uh, you know, I think um, Johnston, um, who knows what this, what this becomes, but it, it feels like a certain kind of leadership element in Johnstown has responded to this piece um, in what they hope will be a kind of positive, constructive way to move this city forward. I mean, it's a place that, you know, 50 years ago had 70,000 people and now has fewer than 20,000 people. So it is. It, yeah, I noticed that the population drop. It was uh, 70,000 at one point, right? Am I remembering the yeah, first I mean, figure it, it was a... Um, it was a, you know, small city, um, a bustling city, robust, vibrant um, economy, kind of a one horse town with coal and steel, which is why the decline of coal and steel has been so much of a blow. But um, at one point in time, it was a... Um, very economically vibrant, and now it is not <laughs> anywhere near as e economically vibrant. And I think there is, as there is in many, many places in the rural areas and in the Midwest and in the Rust Belt, there is a sense of uh, loss and anxiety and, um, and an open question about how to solve the problem. Um, and that is a question that is, I think, on the minds of not only the citizens who are still living in places like Johnstown, but, you know, public policymakers, period. Um, and it should be on the minds of politicians, um, that, which is to say policymakers, because, you know, something does need to be done. I mean, the, the anxieties that manifested themselves in the election of Donald Trump a year ago and the anxieties that continue to um, show up in the rampant opioid epidemics in places like Johnstown. These are incredibly important problems that need to be addressed and should be fixed and should, or, or at least alleviated. And I think 
the fact that they haven't been for so long made many people, many voters in, in Johnstown and places like Johnstown particularly susceptible to the, the campaign that Donald Trump ran. And he showed up at their place and said, I'm going to bring your steel jobs back. I'm going to bring your coal jobs back. I'm going to make America great again. I'm going to make it the way it once was. And shoot, whether they actually believed it or not, and from what I heard the last time I was there, they didn't really, but they believed it enough or wanted to believe it desperately enough to, uh, to, to the extent that they, they voted for him. Um, because what was the alternative? They're not going to vote for Hillary Clinton, who's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put coal miners out of work. Well, you know, that was one of the things that kind of uh, surprised me in your article was when you said that uh, to some degree, they didn't even really believe him that much the first time, you know, Um, because I was thinking it was going to be more like they kind of jumped in with two feet, believed him wholeheartedly. And now they were kind of scrambling to Mm. rationalize it. And the article kind of makes it clear in the beginning they might have believed him more than now, or at least said they did. But even from the beginning, there was still, it still wasn't really fully. Yeah, I think there was like a different kind of energy, a different vibe that I heard um, in my trip, uh, during my trip in November 2016 versus November 2017. This, this, maybe not expectation, but this ardent, uh, earnest hope that maybe this would be the answer to fix some of the ills of just town. And now when it, it is a year later and granted only a year, uh, you know, <laughs> give some time, but there, there, there was to me a much more clear eyed assessment that nobody, not Trump, but nobody um, can resurrect the, you know, rusty carcasses of the steel mills um, lining the, you know, rivers that meet downtown. Um, you know, there is a bit of a bump in coal, but I'm not sure how much of that has to do with the administration of Donald Trump. Uh, certainly environmental regulations being rolled back doesn't hurt, but there are other sort of global market forces that have led to some additional coal jobs in the area, however, temporarily. But in the grand scheme of things, it is a drop in the bucket compared to the level of employment that was in and around Johnstown in those kind of, you know, very much obviously related industries of coal and steel. And so one thing one thing I found interesting was how people kept telling you, people kept telling you, hey, we like him because he keeps his promises. And then when you ask them which ones and they'll say like border security and then you point out there's no wall yet and the person will say, well, no fault of his. Or you say um, getting rid of Obamacare. You point out he hasn't. They're like, well, he he tried to. So it's interesting. They just yeah. finished saying he kept his promises. As soon as you point out, well, actually he hasn't, they just say, you know, well, fine, but it's not his fault. So either he did keep his promises or he didn't. But I, I just find it so interesting right on the spot sure. how these people will rationalize 
right then and there, mid conversation, midstream, to say well, I something. Think one of the else. most effective tactics of Donald Trump and his placent over the last two and a half years has been to very clearly and very simply identify enemies, not only of his, but enemies of his supporters as defined by him. And so yes, he, when he fails at something, when he doesn't accomplish something he wants to accomplish, when he doesn't deliver on a promise, and this has happened many times, I mean, not across the board, of course, he has done some things that will have lasting consequences so far in his presidency, but mostly he has struggled to deliver on a wide variety of pledges he made during his campaign. And it is a, because of the groundwork he has laid, I'm not even sure there's sort of a master plan at work. It's sort of, a, it just, it's more intuitive. He is a very intuitive guy on this front and, and well before he started to leverage it in a explicit political way, he was doing this in his business and media spheres as, you know, throughout his adult life. But he always has scapegoats, enemies, um, people who are making it difficult for him, um, people who are obstructing what he wants. And there is a portion of the electorate, his most devoted base, um, including people I talked to in Johnstown that have definitely internalized this message. It has been very successful um, as a tactic for Trump. Yeah. And they even sound like him to a degree. Like they're even saying things like CNN is fake news. They've yeah. learned to deflect blame. Like, I, I I don't know if it's more that he's challenging them. He's, cha he's channeling them or they've learned to channel him or vice versa. But he's very in, in sympathetical with them. Absolutely. I mean, say what you want about Donald Trump as a president or as a political candidate or as a man or as a businessman, but he does have um, some considerable skills in, in this regard. And, you know, whether the number of people uh, on whom these uh, tactics are working the best are still enough to um, comprise a winning political coalition on an election day that is kind of unknowable and is an, is an open question and um, we'll have to see. But, you know, the people who are most devoted to him really, really uh, are unwilling, from what I found out, from what I heard in Johnstown, are unwilling to entertain the notion that his failure on these fronts is anything other than a result of um, any number or any combination of obstructionist influences. One thing that surprised, one thing with me and the election, I was one of the few people that I knew that thought throughout the election that Trump had a very good chance of winning. I, even during the debates... Why do you think that? Well, 
The reason why I thought that, um, I even thought he won the debates, to be honest. And But I was thinking of it like a Trump voter because through the years, I've been trolled by the alt-right a lot and interacted with them a lot. And I used to hate read the sites a lot. So I was kind of used to how they think. So I think a lot of people were kind of looking for some kind of intellectual engagement. And when I saw the debates and I saw them and I was like, wow, to the mind of like that person that is vulnerable to uh, Trump's message, Hillary is coming off awful because she's coming off like a smug school teacher, like, a, like the poster child for in their in their mind what the condescending lecturing white liberal is you know the the so-called coastal elites so what i was telling people right was that uh this is not like debate club where it's like who scores the most points and who you know because hillary was saying stuff like hey go to my site on hillary.com and read the fact checking like like egg egg heady stuff during the debate and i'm like a lot of these Trump people that I'm seeing in my mentions on Twitter, on these websites, they are not going to go to Hillary.com or, you know, click on links or whatever, but they're going to remember, like, like Trump's zingers. They're going to remember, but this was the key thing, right? He had no solutions, but he was at least admitting there was a problem. And what I mean by that is, like, he was like, oh, NAFTA was a sucky deal, jobs are going away, this, that. And then Hillary was like, oh, Donald. You know, she's like tut-tutting. There's no, you know, she's kind of like, there he goes again, being ridiculous. And I was like, yeah, he's kind of ridiculous and he has no solutions, but at least he's admitting to a degree there's a problem where you're just like, you know, that dog in that meme where there's fire everywhere and the dog just saying like, um, it's fine or everything's fine, you know, like while well, the place is on fire. So I kept thinking like, like to me, by the criteria of a lot of people who are going to be watching this, I don't think Hillary won. I think she kind of uh, played into the stereotypes of her that alienate people. But when by the time it got to the pussy grabbing part, that part I thought sunk him. That was the one part where I finally said, okay. They finally got him on something. Well, easy to say now, but the opinions of Hillary Clinton in Johnstown, and I know this because I was Johnstown, yeah. but the opinions of people in Johnstown and places like it that I've also been to were of Hillary Clinton were so, so negative that almost, I mean, again, easy to say now, it almost didn't matter what Trump said or did. And I didn't talk this last time in Johnstown as much with people about Hillary Clinton because what does it matter at this point? But I definitely heard there and in other places like it in 2016, really strongly, virulently, profane-laced negative opinions about Hillary Clinton, including, and maybe even especially from women, from a certain kind of uh, woman in a, um, you know, uh, lower middle class, uh, 
Yeah, I can Rust attest to that. I can attest to that. Setting. They were not going to vote for Hillary Clinton under under any circumstance. And so Donald Trump could have potentially gotten their vote without doing anything, but he did more than nothing, far more than nothing. I mean, he went to Johnstown specifically three weeks or so before the election and, you know, delivered one of his um, hour plus screeds about how the government has let you guys down and your place down and I'm going to fix it. And whether or not the people in that minor league hockey arena that day really truly thought he was going to do all that is sort of beside the point. The most important thing that Donald Trump was doing there there explicitly, specifically in their place, and then also sort of writ large in the campaign was simply, if nothing else, voicing acknowledgement that they are in a bad way and they, they used to enjoy a higher standard of life and a better future. They, in Johnstown and in many places like Johnstown, feel totally left behind and um, uh, they feel that way because they, in many ways, have been totally left behind. It used to be way better. It used to be way easier to be uh, a person, an adult, uh, with a high school education if you were white, uh, especially in Johnstown. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean... It's a story across America, but it's like amplified in places like Johnstown. Like you have to do a lot more just to get a lot less, not even to get to the same place, like to even do half as good for a lot of places. um, You have to do a lot more. And I think there was a window in American history, especially post-war, there was this boom that wasn't really normal even in america you know like totally yeah totally but that people just kind of took as the new normal you know there was like um this 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 new type of existence for white americans with the explosion of suburbs the post new deal it it is it's it's just so interesting how people just think empire was always was and always was going to be and the wake up call has not been good for a lot of these people and i think what your piece did was really illustrate this new reality in a very stark but sympathetic mm. way because this type of piece isn't totally new there were a lot of people going down to these type of communities and and trying to do a type of profile of them but i found a lot of them were either a little overly judgmental or you know kind of very lacking sympathy or they were the opposite we're kind of treating them with kid gloves and i like what i like about your piece is just kind of let the people's words speak for themselves and it seemed like you didn't do too much prompting too much arguing or anything you kind of just let the people speak their own piece which leads to my next question what exactly 
did these people accuse you of from Johnstown when it came to saying that you misrepresented the town? Because you didn't really seem to inject your own voice that much, except to occasionally ask, uh, to occasionally correct when they said that he delivered on his promises. So were they saying that you cherry picked? Were they saying that you left other things out? Were they saying that you, um, like, what was the specific complaint? I'd say most in the most general way, the complaint was that I didn't go out of my way to highlight a few of the things that some people are doing in the small city and the surrounding area to try to improve um, what is now life there. Um, you know, my charge was, and my fairly targeted reporting exercise was to go revisit with people that I visited with a year before. And so <laughs> this is not, this was not a some sort of sprawling, you know, dissertation on Johnstown and um, the history of Johnstown and how we got here. Um, I wanted to follow up with people I talked to uh, in November 2016, immediately after Donald Trump was elected. And so I think, I think what they were really pushing back on was one, some of the more eye popping and objectionable comments that were made to me and therefore that I included in my story. And also even more so the um, kind of remarkable extent to which it was ultimately read, um, you know, you know, you never quite know which stories are going to catch fire, so to speak. But this one did um, because of, I think, among other things, um, some you know, very prominent uh, people with large numbers of uh, Twitter followers and large numbers of uh, devotees and uh, readers um, those folks shared the story and it suddenly sort of took on a life of its own. And so I think once Johnstown saw that it was having, you know, the community leaders in Johnstown saw that it was having, um, that it was being so widely read, I think they were particularly um, uh, attuned to how their place was being seen. My surprise was that, you know, the story that I wrote a year ago did not portray the town, uh, small city and the, that area of Western Pennsylvania in kind of demonstrably rosier terms, far from it. I think it just got for whatever reason, a little bit more lost in the shuffle of kind of the immediate postmortems of the election. Yeah, I kind of have a theory about that. I think before, a lot of people kind of didn't care because they were taking it as a foregone conclusion. I think a lot of people, well, here's a debate that I was having a lot leading up to the election, because at every step of the way, I was very sure that um, Trump was stronger than people thought. 
because I've just been very into these communities for like a while, like all these weird communities, and I've watched them grow. And I remember people kept telling me, oh, the alt-right is small, just ignore them. Oh, this is not real, just ignore them. And people just kept like laughing it off. And I'm like, I think these really extreme online voices are kind of just, you know, very vocal, but there's a lot of people who think milder versions of this. And I noticed a lot of people just didn't want to take them seriously. They didn't want to cover Trump rallies, or they thought it was kind of a waste of time to do it. Or there was a fear, oh, we're giving them a platform. Like there was this kind of magical thinking where it's like, if we don't acknowledge them, they won't exist. You know, or if we don't acknowledge them, they're just going to shrivel up from the lack of attention from us. So, so I think that once Trump won and they kind of realized, oh, wait a minute, we have to take these people seriously. Now there was a kind of a belated scramble to analyze these people. So I think that's a big reason why pieces like this were taken a lot more seriously. But something that I did find interesting is even after the election, even after so many people in media were caught with their pants down and blindsided, I noticed there's still a lot of people who get angry at anyone who gives these people any type of airtime, like who still think that uh, giving them a platform is going to kind of create them. Because you would think with Trump winning, this is as much of a platform as they're going to get. It's already been proven. Ignoring them doesn't work. So have you been getting a lot a lot more of that still um, about people getting mad at you for... I mean, I don't know if they're mad at me. There is a line of thought, uh, particularly in overactive Twitter mentions that, you know, any amount of reporting in these places is giving an undue platform to uh, people who, who would be better ignored, which I just think is a foolish notion. Um, you know, I mean, look, lots of people in lots of places obviously made Trump the president. And I do think there's something to the idea that, you know, there have been far stories out of places like Johnstown than there have been out of, you know, rich uh, vanilla suburbs that also made um Trump president. It's a kind of harder, less grabby, less eye-catching setting um, to, you know, drive a rental car through a gated community, knocking on doors of fancy houses, asking why they voted for Trump, because they did. But um, then again, if not for voters in places like Johnstown in Pennsylvania and in Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, and not that many of them, you know, 70 plus thousand of them, uh, we'd be, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I literally would never have been to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, if not for, you know, some pretty specific kinds of voters in pretty specific kinds of places in those three states. And those voters, those were voters that were, uh, traditionally vote Democrat, right? In some of those areas? Absolutely. And, and, 
and 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 many of uh, many people I have talked to in Johnstown and both my trips, in fact, still are Democrats. They're just sort of, uh, disillusioned, uh, traditionally union uh, tied Democrats. People were Democrats uh, in Johnstown and in some cases still are Democrats just because of inertia, because their parents were and their grandparents were. And those older generations were Democrats because uh, it was such a union strong place. Everybody who worked in the steel mills was a union employee. Everybody who worked coal mines, et cetera, et cetera. And so very much a democratic stronghold in this like traditional blue collar sense that obviously has been peeling away slowly but surely over the last generation plus. And then finally, uh, because of Trump and because of uh, the buttons he pushed and uh, the things he emphasized and the places he went, um, a lot of those people sort of once and for all uh, peeled hard away from just clicking the D because that's what they had always done. So there were Democrats, but they were kind of... um... I don't want to say single issue Democrats, but they were a specific type of Democrat based on the strength of unions and things like that, which kind of have let them down in recent years. Yeah. I mean, what 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 good is a union if uh, the union is either no longer there or greatly diminished um, and you're looking for somebody to blame for your you know, lessened future and your smaller paycheck if you have one. And so why I pull the lever for the candidate that my uh, union boss is, is, um, is talking up. It's just, it, it that, that has been crumbling for decades in places like that. And, um, you know, as we said, uh, Trump, made it a point uh, in a very savvy way to go to those places and speak directly to uh, and to acknowledge directly that discontent. Have you seen responses from the more traditional or establishment uh, Republicans? Like I can imagine the alt-right 4chan type of guys, you know, we're going to hate this piece. I didn't really ask too much about them because i can just imagine what your mentions were like but i was wondering what they say the ben shapiro's the uh daily caller the national review types um if any if you got any response from them what it was i haven't that's not to say that there wasn't uh some response from those uh sorts of people or sorts of organizations uh honestly uh once Immediately after this story published, I on the hook for another totally different story, and so uh, in, in in some ways, um, you know, the first few days when this was up and was just uh, burning through the internet, um, I was um, focused on otherwise, um, and so was only sort of catching glancing blows. Um, uh, from my mentions and from some of the, you know, sort of stories written about the story and, uh, you know, letters landing in my inbox. I have, I honestly have some catch up to do on that front. Uh, probably better off not. There's probably gonna be a lot more, uh, <laughs> toxic stuff. Yeah. You want to Well, encounter. the thing is like, the new, especially with the Trump, involving Trump voters is going to be, uh, pretty crazy. But here's something that I was kind of surprised about. Like your piece 
got a lot of coverage, but it also got surprisingly little coverage in the way that I thought it was. And what I mean by that is mainstream liberals and radicals and leftists have kind of been in a back and forth about the white working class and is it about uh, economic anxiety or is it about racism? Is it about economic Mm -hmm. anxiety and it's about racism? And what I find interesting about your piece is it's one of the best marriages of both viewpoints. So I thought I thought it would get a lot of attention yeah. for that. And I saw it, it didn't spark as much debate about that as I thought. And I wonder if maybe that's because it didn't present as clear cut a winner as either of those camps um, would have thought. But maybe I just missed the debate. So I was wondering if you've seen anything in that respect as far as the class versus race uh, debate. Uh, I haven't. I didn't. Maybe for the reason I just cited. I will say, though, your question makes me rethink something I've thought for months, if not approaching a year by now. This conversation, this debate about whether you know Trump supporters are racist or economically anxious or something else, it just strikes me as so limited. I mean, I, I think it's, 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 it's different, different people. And in many cases, it's, it's some, it's some combination of both those things plus some other things. Um, you know, I don't, I don't doubt that there are some people who voted for Trump simply because they have racist sentiments. And I don't doubt that there are some people who voted for Trump simply because they feel so economically bereft. But I think in most cases, it is, you know, as is the case with all people and all candidates, it's like this complicated, even intangible cocktail of consensus. And I think hopefully what kind of came across just naturally in this Johnstown piece was that even the people who expressed the most um, the most striking racial language also in some cases feel um, the brunt of the uh, harder future and the harder economy that exists in Johnstown now compared to 30, 40 years ago. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I have a personal belief and I think that your article um, reflected it as well. I always feel that people make a mistake of separating the two because there's certain relation. Like when you're doing well, other people don't threaten you as much. But when you're not doing well, you you start looking for scapegoats. You start looking for people to blame. And America has a history of when there's any type of anxiety or whatever, especially economically, there's a rise in racial violence, a rise in anti-immigrant violence. So, like, I firmly believe it could be both. You could have economic anxiety and then that makes your racism act up kind of like how your immune system goes down and then that cold or virus you have in you 
that was dormant all this time um, acts up. And I feel that your piece kind of showed that pretty showed that pretty well. Like they might be racist because they have economic anxiety. Or, and I feel like that kind of option is just kind of not being discussed because people just want to have that binary. The, the leftists just want to have a class solves all solution. And then a lot of liberals just want to have an identity politics solution. So when I read your piece, I was kind of hoping it would spur a lot of analysis that was truly intersectional. And I felt that didn't quite happen to the degree that I would have liked. I felt it was kind of a missed opportunity through no fault of yours, just more through the fault of the limited imagination of a lot of the commentariat. You know, what's interesting to me is that the woman who along with her husband, said the most, I guess, discussed uh, comment, uh, racially insensitive comment in this story, she actually, and they, that married couple, relative to the area, are not that financially insecure. They live in a sufficiently nice house. Um, they are both retired, um, not rich by any means, but can buy food and pay their bills and whatnot. But she uh, lost her son to uh, a heroin overdose, which is a reflection of kind of the um, the economic collapse that in some sense claimed her son, right? He wanted to he wanted to tap into the same kind of economy that supported his older generations, that supported his uh, you know, father and grandfather and whatnot, and it didn't work out. And he, um, I mean, there are lots of reasons somebody becomes addicted the way that he did, but one of them was a sense of, of, a, of a lack of a you know, discernible future uh, the way that he had uh, hoped. And so there is a Deep and understandable, you know, justifiable. There's, 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 there's sympathy and empathy there. There is a understandable dissatisfaction with this place on the part of this woman because it claimed her son in this way. And so, to what extent that led to her um, wanting to voice what she voiced to me? Who knows? But it's it's all part of a piece. I'll say I'll say I'll say this right, uh, relating to what you said. The economic anxiety, even if she's not particularly struggling herself, through the form of her son's lack of economic prospects, which leads to his heroin addiction, which leads to his death. You know, the anxiety does kind of affect her but what i found really interesting as far as a relation right because to give people background who haven't read the piece yet the odious language that uh michael's talking about is where she tells this is the woman who uh wanted her husband to say what nfl stands for right yeah she asked her husband you know she's like oh tell them what you said nfl stands for the other day because a lot of them had this um had this 
fixation with uh, Kaepernick and the NFL and the protesters. And you were saying when we recorded the first time that they were bringing this up unsolicited. You weren't even asking about the NFL, right? I didn't. I, in that in that situation with uh, with her and her husband, I I did not ask a question. We were talking about something else, and somehow something triggered in her mind, and she wanted to tell me what she felt, what she thought about the kneeling NFL players. I did not ask a question. That, yeah, which is, which is like fascinating, which means that it's really burning a hole in her, this concern. And I think like, you know, to a degree, when you see like your white son who can't get um, work or who can't get sufficient enough work to stay off drugs or find hope. And then you have these black guys who are supposed to be um, getting less than you or inferior to you making millions and then complaining. I mean, I think it's another way that the economic anxiety probably gets gets married to the racism. I could see like how that probably drives them um, nuts. Like not only are you doing better than us, you're not even supposed to be doing better than us. So you should be extra grateful and you have the nerve um, to complain. It's something you actually heard in one of the other, in the comments from one of the other people there toward the end of this piece. Um, the owner of the catering company, the local catering company, who said that, you know, the, uh, equality is something earned. And I, I'm, I'm, I don't have it in front of me. I'm, I'm sort of crudely paraphrasing here, but said, you know, people come over to this country and they earn and they deserve equality through work was what he was basically saying. Yeah. And then, and then this, the strong suggestion was that NFL players don't fall into that category because NFL players are not Italian, Irish, i.e. white. And, you know, as you read in the piece, I sort of push back and say, well, <laughs> what you're not a, you're not a, f- a fan of equality no i'm a fan of equality but it takes this it takes you need to earn it and deserve it and i said so basically nfl players aren't earning what they're getting it just it was a clear window into i think what you're describing this sense that and what was fascinating what was fascinating about that is there's not this idea that it's a quid pro quo which I find fascinating because I never see people say that with white athletes. Like when white athletes complain, they're superstar athletes. No one acts like Tom Brady is being given charity for making millions of dollars. People think that guy is an incredible quarterback. He's earning that million plus dollars that he's that he's making by his performance. But with the black athletes, I mean, it's in, it takes incredible odds to go against an incredible talent to make the NFL and they generate insane amount of income. Like these owners are rich for a reason. And it's because these people are generating money. Like, like they're valuable. Like this isn't like adopting African orphans. You know, these, these aren't, it's not like a one-sided um, transaction, but for a lot of these people, they can't get it out of their mind that these nine people are getting 
uh, charity. They're almost acting like they're collecting welfare or something. Well, that, just, that was they should be great. They're making they're making all this money. Well, I mean, and, and you can say, well, not not really. I mean, what is the average NFL career? You know, even the people who who make it and stick are what two and a half years or something. So let's say you're making you know even three four million dollars a year and and you're out in three years. You know, it's not, it's not, you're not making $30,000 a year and struggling to pay your bills, but you still have to make that stretch uh, all the way. I don't, I just, you know, that doesn't seem to register <laughs> with uh, the, 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 the relative lack of length of the career. But, um, uh, you know, I just, I, I, I think um, there is a, a sense um, that, the NFL players should be grateful that they are able to quote play a game and make quote all this money and therefore should just shut up and do what they're told. And, you know, I just think it's like a dangerous and short-sighted and um, sort of silly viewpoint. It was exactly. also fascinating to me that they don't kind of realize that the owners are getting as much, if not more, than from the players than vice versa. And they're versa. also not having their bodies and their brains destroyed. So, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So they're putting less on the line than the players. They just kind of make it seem like these owners are just doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. Like, uh, and it's not, it's not like that. And then when you add all the years that the NCAA gets to make money off their merchandise without paying these people anything. These people generate millions for establishments before they even start collecting a dime. You know, so it's a it's a pretty interesting uh, language that I see used that never really seems to get used for um, white players. Like if a white player is holding out for a contract negotiation or wants more right. money, you know, I never really see that whole grateful right. language. But, you know, uh, to, to, to sort of get this back to Trump, I think he understands intuitively in a way that lots of people don't, I include myself or didn't. He understands that this is a, this is a, uh, a cultural sentiment that he can capitalize on and that, you know, that this is the way that many people or enough people for his purposes see NFL players, particularly black NFL players. Therefore, this is a fertile territory for him to, stoke you know this front of the culture war and you sort of get that you you get that in like an intellectual way when it starts to flare up but you don't really get that at least i don't until i go to a place like johnstown sit in somebody's living room sit across the table from somebody having lunch and listen to it and uh that to me is you know one of the real um, valuable uh, reasons to keep going to places like Johnstown and keep listening to those people. Something your article made me think of was as I read it, 
I was thinking of a Moynihan report for white people. <laughs> you know, it's like everything in here is something that used to be considered a uniquely black pathology. That's how people used to speak about these things, particularly um, you see remnants of that in the Italian person. The Italian person says, oh, my people worked hard. They earn stuff. They do things, which kind of implies that, okay, that means that the people that she is talking about who didn't earn stuff, meaning black people or whatever, these are people who they deserve to be where they are. You know what I mean? Like they deserve to be there. My people, they work their way out of that. So now if you're in a town of white people and everything in here is stuff that used to be, you know, discussed when talking about black pathology or the Moynihan reports, you know, like drug, drug epidemics, unemployment. I'm sure there's probably a lot of uh, more single parentage than there used to be in previous generations. You know, I think there's a kind of idea that this isn't supposed to happen to us. We're supposed to be um, better than this. And either we're not special or the game is rigged. If, if, if we're doing as bad as uh, black people, either our exception, our ex- exceptionality, exceptionality is a myth or the game is rigged. And I felt, I don't know if I'm reading into the piece because of my personal bias, but I felt that there was an undercurrent of that um, in this, yeah. in this article, which also kind of translated to the whole anger at, NFL people, because the flip side of we're not supposed to be doing this bad is you're not supposed to be doing that good. Right. And, you know, when Trump says this is rigged, um, in some ways, in some ways it is. Uh, the the rich, uh, rich people are taking too much, leaving too little for the people who aren't rich. In that way, uh, it is rigged. But I think what... Uh, is also true is that it used to be rigged for undereducated white people. (laughs) And now it is rigged much less for undereducated white people. And therefore it is much more difficult to make ends meet. And I mean, it's something I heard um, there on the sidewalk across from the Planned Parenthood place when the man who wouldn't give me his last name said, and this isn't even in the story, but it's something he told me. He said, you know, it used to be here that, and he says, this is a man in his mid sixties, Trump supporter, very distrustful of me. He says, it used to be that you could graduate high school and walk across the street and walk into the office at Bethlehem steel and sign up and then work for the next 30 years and then retire. Well, shoot. I mean, that is yeah, yeah. Gold watch. It's just like that is so you're the, the sort of the the foundational complaint in Johnstown and in many, many Johnstowns at this point in 2017 is I can no longer as a white man merely graduate from high school and then with no real uh, or extraordinary or even above average effort 
punch a clock for the next 30 years and then retire and raise my family. Well, shoot, you know, (laughs) was it like that for uh, everybody else who wasn't in your position? And should it even be like that? Shouldn't it require a little bit more um, uh, action on your part to make it work and to have a comfortable or better than comfortable life? And it wasn't even like that for many of their ancestors. Like that was a very recent right. um, in- innovation. This was like a post World War II, like t- what thirty years of of, of uh, absolute salad days yes. in places like Johnstown. And 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 do you think they see it as it was ever rigged for them? Because I feel like there's a part of them that won't admit that to themselves because there's a belief of that self-exceptionalism like like when that person said my people did it and etc like they don't seem to grasp that it was a rigged game and they just happened to be on the wrong side of yeah, it I'm now gonna go on the record when say, they used no, to be on the right side that is not at all <laughs> that is not um a conversation i've had with too many people in johnstown and other places like johnstown that i've been over the last year yeah I can't imagine that. I can't imagine they'd welcome it if oh, yeah, you tried to bring that up. Yeah, well, I, I, <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I, I don't go to places like this and um, ask questions that are sort of pointedly and gratuitously provocative. I want, I want to sort of, I want to sort of. Uh, Present myself and uh, tease things out and let people say what they want to say. But um, this is an interesting conversation. I just don't know how far you'd get or how productive it would be if you if you sort of went at somebody and went at that person I was describing across the street from the Planned Parenthood place and said, you know, well, what you just said, like, uh, you know, must have been nice then, you know. Oh, yeah. You can't overwork you- <laughs> yeah, you can't overtly ask that, but I was wondering if anybody kind of feels that, okay. Let me rephrase that, right? Uh, one thing about entitlement is that when you feel entitled to something, just not being treated special is akin to being like abused or deprived. Like you know, just being treated like everyone else registers as abuse. Whereas with some people, if they're not entitled, they know that they, that they're riding a gravy train, that they're in a special part point in history. And, you know, it might not last forever, but I'm going to enjoy it while I can. Like, I'm fortunate. And the story that you said seems to be a guy who falls into that first category, who thinks it was like this. This is how it always should be. It, it deserves to be like this. Like, like this is this should be the normal. What I'm wondering is, even if you didn't ask it explicitly, did you get any sense from some people that, okay, we lived in a particular fortunate era in history and it doesn't exist anymore, but it wasn't our exceptionalism. It was, you know, yeah, yeah. Did anybody seem to have that type of uh, grasp of it? I wouldn't go that far. It was. It's, <laughs> it's more of a. Uh, uh, it's more of a. It's more of a sense. And I, I don't. I don't mean that in any sort of derogative way, derogatory way. I just. I just mean that it is. It is more elemental than that. It is a uh, recognition that 
um, not too long ago in the grand scheme of things, um, this worked very well for me and for people like me and for my family. And it now works much less well. And uh, can't there be done something? Can't something be done about it? Did you uh, did you get a chance to talk to any young people? It's an interesting question. There aren't that many young people left uh-huh. in and around Jumptown. Um, and partly it's a function, the people I talked to this last time, that roster is a function of the people I talked to the first time I was there, which did not include uh, that many young people. Honestly, being in Johnstown and being in the sort of towns around it in um, the hills and the mountains, um, you don't, or at least I haven't run into, it's an older population. Yeah. Is what I guess what I'm trying to say. Um, it is, uh, and it's something that the city manager of Johnstown actually said to me. And I included in the piece that, you know, many people, many younger people who have a skill set and a burning desire to do something and to make something of themselves left. I mean, they, they leave, they, they graduate high school and they go off to college somewhere else or they go to college in the area and then they go to Pittsburgh or they go to Washington or they go to New York or they go to Chicago or wherever they go to try to have more opportunity because there is more opportunity in those places. And then there's not that much drawing them back. So it is a, dwindling population and it is an aging population do you have any uh predictions for um what you see happening by the time 2020 happens i mean just any any type of insight that these past two trips have given you that you think a lot of people are not um with respect to catching on in 2020 or kind of the larger faith of Johnstown? Both. Johnstown specifically, and then the broader picture of the election. Um, particularly, I think, how the rest of the mainstream media and the Democratic machine are approaching it. Uh, just, to specific, just to make the question a little more specific. Because uh, I see, for example... A lot of analyses like yours aren't really the focus anymore. When it just an election just happened, that seemed to be the focus, and then now we just he, hear a lot of Russia, Russia, yeah. Russia indictment talk. I feel like a lot of eggs have been put into that one basket, and a lot of discussion of voter values issues, trying to. F- follow trend lines has kind of fallen by the wayside um, in pursuit of salacious uh, Russia headlines. So I kind of want to hear something more in the line of what people think is going to happen politically, both in small towns like uh, Johnstown and as far as values and also just general election predictions. You know, I'm, (laughs) <laughs> reluctant to make um, pr- predictions at this point. Um, 
just because of uh, what we've seen over the last year plus. But um, I do think that in 2020, something... I do think that in 2020, unless and until... And just talking about the presidential election in 2020 and assuming Donald Trump is the Republican incumbent. I, I, I think unless and until the Democrats put somebody uh, opposite him who gives the middle voters in places like Johnstown, the somewhat swayable voters in places like Johnstown, a reason, an affirmative reason to click, to pull the lever for uh, uh, a D again, Trump will win all of those votes, almost regardless of where we are, what he's done, what he's said. I'm thinking here about an um, older man who runs a record store in Johnstown. I talked to him this last trip, and he is not sort of this particularly ardent Trump supporter, but he did vote for Trump. He has very mixed feelings about the kind of tempestuous nature of his administration to this point, and yet very clearly told me if he had to do it again and if there were an election tomorrow, he would again vote for Donald Trump. So I think until that kind of voter is given a, an attractive alternative, Trump will still win in those places. And I think Trump, regardless, will win. Again, assuming he's the Republican incumbent in 2020, I think he will win in Cambria County. Will he win in Cambria County by, you know, 30, 39% as he did last year? Or will he win it by, you know, 25%? I mean, that, that is the sort of the slim margin, right? If he, if he wins by a little bit less in a handful of those kinds of places in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, or states like that, well, then the, the equation doesn't work the way it worked last fall. So... He doesn't have to lose much of the voters he drew in last year to lose in 2020. That's a, a statistical reality. Yeah, because there was a lot of voter apathy. Yeah, there was a lot of voter apathy. It wasn't like he had this huge um, wave of support so much as that in addition to his small but fervent support, there was just a lot of apathy toward both the small, the small and fervent uh, base of support is both those things, small and fervent, right? And so it's not enough. It's not enough. He needs yeah. other. He needs other people yes. to reelect him. I'm not saying he won't have those people because the same calculus I think could very well play out in 2020 the same way it did in 2016. The the not insignificant portion of his voters who really did not like him a great deal and had reservations, but also made the compromise in their own minds that it, voting for him was worth other things they were going to get that they felt were important. And in some cases have already, you know, number one being Neil Gorsuch Supreme Court and, and other federal judges. I mean, that is, I think for a certain kind of voter that finds Donald Trump to be sort of um, 
a marginally in control clown, you know, at least he has given them those returns in spades. And so that vote made for that reason was not a thrown away vote, was not a vote that didn't, that didn't yield returns for those kinds of people. And so, you know, there's no way to know for sure, but I don't know that that would be any different in 2020 when push comes to shove come election day. Yeah. You asked earlier, uh, you asked why I thought, uh, Trump was going to win for most of the election. And I forgot to share, um, a reason. And this wasn't something I came up with. It was an article I read by somebody else. And I wish I could remember the name, but there was someone who kept writing that I think everyone's underestimating Trump. But what they suggested was they said, I've been going to his rallies to report and the enthusiasm gap is insane. And then they said, um, don't go by the medium, go to YouTube and start looking at his, um, YouTubes of his rallies and his speeches. And when I was watching them and you know, YouTube is an autoplay. So you can just fall down a YouTube rabbit hole for like passively for like hours. And there was something very different, like almost in spite of myself, I found myself getting swept in the energy of it. As in like, you know, there was a lot of like zingy one liners. There were a lot of, um, this unabashed will- willingness to kind of say what he meant. Whereas a lot of politicians just conventional wisdom is you can't really say anything definitive one way or the other. You have to be um, respectful. And even though I realized it was horrifying, I kind of saw what the guy in the article was talking about when it comes to the enthusiasm gap and that straight shooting. And when I see the Democrats, I see that there's still no real counter messaging being put forward uh, as a party, at least on the um, the main the mainstream level. Like they're still putting all this effort into the legitimacy of the last election, which has which has gone. If it, it you know, they're not really saying why he's bad outside of his tone. Like you know, oh, he said this terribly tone deaf tweet. Or because that he cheated in the last election, supposedly is you know you know, and that kind of worries me because I saw with with mm. Bernie Sanders, I think Bernie Sanders among the Democrats was the closest to having that same type of yep. from the bottom up enthusiasm at his rallies, and like I'm I'm wondering. Well, they were both they were both they're very similar in in. In very different ways, they're very similar, um, yeah. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, in that they are both, uh, they both did in the 2016 cycle uh, better than anybody by far, channel, understand the discontent and, and, and speak to it and uh, give voice to it and uh, channel yeah. um, that discontent. Yeah, so I'm asking, what do you think is the most realistic thing that the Democrats can do three years out to win over those people on the fence in Johnstown, like, like that, that you can realistically see happening based on what's happened so far. Do you think they care about Russia, for example? No, I mean, no. <laughs> um, 
they no. What I think a Democrat could do to win back not all at all, but enough of those voters in Johnstown is to speak convincingly and authentically and entertainingly, frankly, uh, about solutions to their economic uh, plight. This is the overriding concern and has been for half a century. A Democrat is not going to win them back with, you know, sort of a loose uh, overuse term at this point to the point of of, um, meaninglessness, but identity politics. A Democrat is not going to win the culture war in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. It needs to be a sharp, sensible, believable economic message that is an alternative to what Trump has been saying and a um, an alternative to uh, what Trump said and then didn't deliver on. It's a high, it's a, it's a tall task. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say one last thing, then I'll uh, pass it to Mike to see his last words. But I, I, I think a big problem with type of, the type of identity politics that a lot of people are trying to direct toward people in places like Johnstown is what I call a hearts and mind identity politics, where they think uh, the goal is to make these people like or respect people of color or immigrants or people of other religions. And I think that's the specific type of identity politics that is not going to have much traction in just two or three years. You can't make people change their feelings about whole races, whole genders, whole whatever in just two or three years of time. I think what they have to do, which I think is similar to what you're saying, is you have to make them feel hopeful enough about their economics that they don't really care about how much they might dislike people of color, X, Y, and Z. You know, the best thing you can do is get them to disregard their distaste for certain identities because they have a a chicken in the pot or whatever other cliche, you know, you want to use. And, and uh, Mike, do you have any final questions for... Michael? Well, I, you know, just from what I what I gathered from the article, I think the major thing that I picked up is that uh, to what you guys were just talking about, you know, Russia is not going to get these people to go back to Democrats. Um, talking about Trump's boorishness, his, uh, you know, his lack of polish, it's not going to get these people, you know, and it seems like that's all the left wants to harp on, you know, like you said, Russia it only or strengthens. Trump's behavior. Or his t- it does because it's, it's, you know, and it seems like it's going to take another loss for them to get it if they ever do get it, you know, because I'm not getting the sense that they're realizing that these ploys that they're, you know, that they're using are having no appeal uh, outside of their base. And even within the base, people are getting a little tired of it. 
the worst recent thing I saw was when that whole Donna Brazil thing happened. And um, I, I think it was political that uh, uh, first gained traction with the yeah. talking about Donna Brazil thing. And then the DNC gave a statement and in it, they uh, accused Donna Brazil of being under the sway of Russia. I was like, oh, God, like, <laughs> seriously? Like, this is what the DNC... Yeah. And, and it was a lot of prominent people signing that thing. It was Huma, it was Huma and, you know, other prominent... Uh, Democrat people, and I was like, she just pointed out all this kind of disturbing stuff that needs addressing, whether you give it credence or not. It needs to be addressed substantively, and you're now accusing some black woman you've known for decades for being like a under the sway of Vladimir Putin. Yeah, a place like Johnstown, yeah. that's not gonna that's not gonna work. It's it not. It's not. You're not, not gonna get anybody to vote to vote against Trump. Just by saying, hey, you know, look how bad he is. Vote. I mean, I think that's what they thought was going to happen with Hillary. You know, I, that's why they were so optimistic. And that's why they were so crushed when she lost. It's like, hey, she's not she's not Donald Trump. That's all you need. Right. I, the, the, uh, you know, if, if, if there's anything that we should have learned, uh, we being the American people should have learned over the last year. It is that uh, every time the left. Uh, points to Donald Trump and yells that he is a bore or he is uh, immoral or he is unfit for the office he was running for and then the office he won, uh, he only gains strength with uh, the most committed members of his base. And so um, I, I think the much more effective uh, potentially um, route back to the electoral gains in 2020 and also 2018, for that matter, is to provide a an alternative, not an anti-Trump focused alternative, but a more affirmative economic alternative uh, to lure back not all, but just enough of those voters that abandoned them and went to Trump to make him president last year. Very well said. And um, last last question. Is there anything that you felt ended up on the cutting room floor or maybe wasn't emphasized enough or in retrospect that you wish got across in the article that you um, didn't put in there before we go? Uh, you know, I... I always feel that way. I always feel like uh, every story I do um, could have been, uh, could have included this or could have included that um, or didn't need this or didn't need that. I, I sort of, I don't <laughs> typically try to Monday morning quarterback uh, myself in that way, but certainly in, in a general sense, I do feel like, you know, sort of lost in the lens that I have um, used to um, visit Johnstown both these times in the last year uh, is my feeling and the reality that Johnstown is this kind of fascinating little place in Western Pennsylvania that can help us understand so much about what has changed um, 
so influentially over the last half a century. You can tell the story of the country through Johnstown and through Cambria County, Pennsylvania from, you know, at least World War II on, if not before that on. Okay, well... I'm grateful for you for coming out with us, and I hope uh, next year you're not persona non grata in Johnstown, <laughs> so that we can see a, a follow up. Definitely I mean, I, th I thought you were pretty fair. I thought you were pretty fair. Yeah, same here. I thought you were pretty fair. So I hope uh, we get to see more, if not Johnstown specifically, places uh, like it, because I don't think uh, these conflicts are going Absolutely. away. Anytime it's, it's soon. The, it's it's in, in, in some respects, it is the most uh, important story. Um, well, I don't know if it's the most important story, but it is one of many important stories we have going right now. We, we need to understand this and we need to uh, we need to know these these places just as these places need to know, um, uh, you know, what they refer to as the coastal elite. There needs to be some sort of, um, you know breaking down of of the wall uh between the quote two Americas. yeah and i don't think jd vances it i i don't <laughs> think that's the solution either so i i much i much prefer i much prefer well, he's, your he's, piece he's, he's one voice uh jd vance so yeah yeah all right so take care enjoy your all right thanks for having me all right, and have a safe trip. I know, you, I know you're uh, yep, out taking your trip. Yeah, he's coming to the tea state, the dairy state. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, see you, Wisconsin. Bye now. All right, be good. Awesome.